Yo, it's Trav back again with you, along with Bias, and you're listening to, if you don't know by now, the Sports Boy, Bag Bros. Bag Bros. That's right, Sports Bag Bros Podcast. This is episode number 18, and of course, you didn't want to miss that, and you know why you're here. You saw the thumbnail, and like usual or as of late, we're going to get through things right away. That thumbnail told you something that you probably didn't know. We're going to put Deontay Wilder against some of the legends of boxing, not necessarily complete legends, but some <laughs> of the legends of boxing, that will be interesting. And we may try to do something like this every Wednesday, have a conversation about a particular topic. This may be the first installment of that, but we want to get this kind of thing together. Whether it's boxing, whether it's football, we have individuals who may want to compete, compare and contrast. Those kinds of things is what we're trying to bring to the table. So make sure you stay tuned because if you're a boxing fan, you're going to like it. If you're not a boxing fan, you may just jump over the fence and become one today now that we're trying to get this jumped over. But before I do that, Bias, say hi to the folks. Let them know. What's up, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, uh, iHeart? Hopefully uh, we're getting more followers. Uh, please uh, interact with us. You can find us on Twitter, Sports Bag Bros, Facebook page, Sports Bag Bros. Uh, we're growing and we're looking for followers and more interaction. And you can follow us all the way to this conversation right now. Have it with us. If we get together live, you'll be able to join this conversation as well. So as it stands right now, Deontay Wilder, one of the greatest knockout artists on paper in boxing history. Well, do you agree with that? First of all, Bias, you know, we are boxing guys. This is what we know. So we can speak about this, I believe. When you say history, are we talking all-time, all divisions, or just heavyweight, modern-day? What you got to be more specific. Well, you know what? When you talk about the hardest puncher in boxing, you typically, if you talk about a heavyweight, that means it pretty much covers everything. Because if you're the hardest punching heavyweight, everyone else gets knocked out. You know what I mean? <laughs> if you're fighting a middleweight, he's done. If you're fighting a light heavyweight, he's done. So if you're the heaviest, the hardest hitting heavyweight in history, or uh, among them you're probably going to be the guy knocking everybody out. So, yeah, I guess say heavyweight for now for the convenience because we're going to compare and contrast him to other heavyweights. Right now, I believe he's among those in this era in particular. The one problem I have is I can't really quantify his punching power at this moment because of the quality of opposition. No fault of his. It's just the era that we're in. And in the opportunities that he did have, especially with the top fighter, I guess right now, who is um, not Usyk right now that we know, but the fighter who went head-to-head -head with him, which is Tyson Fury. He got four knockdowns against him and three fights that they had, but he hasn't won any of them. He's 0-1-2 uh, against Tyson Fury. So the knockout power was there, but that's it. Yeah, I think of this generation, he is the hardest puncher. But as you mentioned, his uh, competition can be questioned. There's just not a lot of great heavyweights out there for him to test himself against. So to quantify his punching power compared to others in the past is difficult. Yeah, it's absolutely difficult. But you know what? We see what we see. And I know one thing that casual fans, fans who don't watch boxing enough, they only know the big names. The one thing that draws them to a fight are the knockouts. You know what I mean? Not the beautiful boxing, which boxing is supposed to be about the sweet science. It's about the knockout punch. When Mike Tyson came along, not only did he have the knockout punch, he had the quickness, he had the skill, and everyone was enamored with him. Now we have Deontay Wilder. It's a different era, but he's getting the knockouts. And we're seeing them one shot in some cases, and the casual fans were enamored. And that's why they drove, came in droves when he fought Tyson Fury the three times he's fought him. Yeah, <clears throat> the crazy thing is, he fights like he has one-punch KO power. He doesn't go after his opponents with high intensity, strong pressure. He doesn't throw a lot of body punches. He doesn't try to break them down. He'll even get out boxed for six, seven, eight rounds sometimes, and then bam, he lands that right hand and fights over. Yeah, and that's true. That's the benefit of being a power puncher. We've talked about Sonny Liston in the past, who was a power puncher, but Ernie Shavers, most of all, when it comes down to all-time big-time punchers in the heavyweight division, he has a resume that proves that he can knock almost anyone out. He just didn't have the overall skills or even experience 
coming to boxing late. But we're going to get into this Deontay Wilder comparison and contrast to other great heavyweights and other legends of boxing from the past. And we'll give you some of those names right now. If not all of them, we have Sonny Liston, Joe Frazier, Ron Lyle, Ken Norton, Lennox Lewis, Floyd Patterson, and we'll end it up with Rocky Marciano, which may be an interesting matchup. Maybe not, depending on how you look at it. And look, there isn't going to be any bias, no pun intended. There isn't going to be any bias when it comes down to me trying to compare or bias, I believe, the same thing. We're going to give you our honest opinion from watching boxing as much as we have watched it, being around boxing for as long as we have been around boxing. We're giving you our honest opinion. You can have an opinion, too, and it doesn't have to be ours. And if you disagree, we can agree to disagree, or you could come with a better argument of how we're wrong. But first up, hey, I'm, I'm I'm open to, to somebody telling me why I'm wrong. You know, if you can convince me, more power to you. Exactly, because if you can convince somebody that they may be wrong and they can agree with you ultimately, that means you've made your solid case. That means you found faults in what they've been saying and you were able to expose that fault and get your opinion across and it becomes universal. I can understand that. But Sonny Liston is the first guy we're going to go out there with. 50 and four, no draws, 39 KOs. Well, Sonny Liston, about what, six foot one, 215 pounds, 220 pounds. One of the first big heavyweights. I think he started the era of big heavyweight champions because everyone before that, 200 pounds. Rocky Marciano, 188, 189. A lot of light heavyweights coming up to fight in the heavyweight class. Not too many heavyweights in there. Not too many big guys like we have now, or even when it came down to the 70s. But nevertheless, Deontay Wilder fighting someone like Sonny Liston. In your opinion, at least right now, what, how would you, how would that go, at least initially? Bing, the bell rings, they come out. How does that start? Uh, I think Sonny comes out trying to establish his jab, but being careful. If he knows about Deontay's big, powerful right hand, he's not just going to go all out and open himself up and leave himself open for that right hand. And as you know, Sonny had a good jab. So he could come out working that jab, maybe throwing some body shots, uh, seeing what openings are being given to him, and just uh, working off the jab early. Yeah, you know what, Sonny Liston, and the ironic part here, Sonny Liston, as we mentioned, is six foot one. Deontay Wilder, six foot seven. He's a huge heavyweight. However, unlike huge heavyweights, with the exception of well, anyone, right now he came in at his best weight, at least before he started gaining weight, two hundred and twelve, two fifteen, two seventeen. So he wasn't that much bigger than a lot of the guys that did fight when Sonny Liston was fighting. And even more important. Sonny Liston had an 84-inch reach at six foot one, whereas Deontay Wilder has a 83-inch reach at six foot seven. That's as weird as it gets, a complete anomaly. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that's also key, Sonny Liston knew how to use his jab. His toughness is unquestionable. He had his jaw broken one time in a fight. He still completed the fight, his first loss. And he's fought with pain before. I mean, the fight he fought with Cleveland Williams, you know, Cleveland was considered the hardest puncher in boxing at the time. He got rid of him in three rounds, but he went through some pain before he did it. Sonny Liston can go in and take the pain and take the punch and still keep punching. Can you take his? Exactly. And I think uh, if there was uh, a buildup to the fight, you know, press conferences and whatnot, it would be real interesting. Sonny would, would try and intimidate Deontay. And I don't think Deontay would allow himself to be intimidated. But... We all know Sonny's one of the realest, toughest guys that's ever been involved in boxing. Yeah, he's a true tough guy. And with Deontay Wilder being six foot seven, he's towering over Sonny. He looks down on Sonny. So, of course, he's not going to be intimidated, I wouldn't think. He hasn't shown any real intimidation. I mean, Tyson Fury isn't the fighter you would be intimidated against because you think about boxing, you don't think about punching power with him. So with Sonny Liston, you have to think about punching power. And so uh, I think Deontay Wilder goes into this fight not using his jab because he doesn't use his jab. Forget mm -hmm. about what you see in these videos of him training when he's using the jab. He's doing a lot of the things that boxers do and are supposed to do. And a boxer at his side, at his side with those measurables, with the arm reach and all that, he should be able to jab better than he never has. Not, not even with Mark Breland in his corner. 
I don't think he's able to take the pressure of Sonny Liston, who just continues to come and throws until the fight is over. And it could be pretty doggone early. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think Sonny could wear him down, break him down, and eventually stop him. I mean, I think that is exactly the case because he's heavy-handed. He had the biggest fist of all heavyweights. He had custom-made gloves because of his big hands. We already know about the power. We already know about the savagery. I'm not even going to look at something like Floyd Patterson because you're talking about a much smaller guy that just got overwhelmed, knocked out in the first round, and then two fights. But Deontay Wilder, I've seen him hurt before. I mean, Eric Molina. This is not Eric Molina. Eric Molina had him hurt. We've seen Luis Ortiz have him hurt. You know, so uh, Sonny Liston gets you out of there. I think this one we both can agree with. Maybe the people out there can agree with. And not just because he's an old-timer, Sonny Liston, but because these are as close to the facts that you're going to get. So Sonny Liston skill-wise, Sonny Liston speed-wise, uh, not speed-wise, but uh, power-wise, and being sturdy, experienced, just an overall tough guy. Not that Deontay Wilder isn't, but we've seen his flaws. And we've seen what happens when his flaws are met. So, yeah, we both agree that Sonny Liston, KO's <clears throat> Deontay Wilder, is any particular round, I think six, seven rounds, I think he gets rid of him. I was thinking between six and nine. Okay, but nonetheless, someone's leaving in a stretcher, someone's going <laughs> home in ambulance, and it won't be Sonny Liston. So, with that being said, we can go to our next matchup, and that is Joe Frazier, an interesting matchup. Joe Frazier, 32 and four. Uh, one draw, 27 KOs. Joe Joe speaks for himself in terms of we know what we're getting with Joe Frazier. You know what I mean? He's going to come after you. That's the game plan. He's coming after you. He's coming to get you. And he's going to keep punching. He's going to keep smoking until you're gone. But Deontay Wilder, six foot seven. Joe Frazier, maybe six feet. Kind of reckless, but there was some method behind the madness of bobbing and weaving the way he did. He made you miss. But Deontay Wilder isn't that kind of fighter who's going to use his jab. He's not going to be like Muhammad Ali using skill and being predictable with those skills. He's just going to throw punches. Wilder, he's wild, unpredictable. Yeah, so for Joe in, in this matchup, he wouldn't have to worry about slipping the jab on the way in, blocking the jab to, to get his way in. He'd be able to just walk in, walk in and just worrying about the right hand. So instead of worrying about maybe a check hook, a, a jab, or right hands, he basically he's just worried about the right hand. So he can come in avoiding that punch, working the body, do his smoking Joe thing, you know. And I think he wears him down. I think he gets inside, basically hits him with everything and the kitchen sink. Well, you know what? This is where we may have a disagreement. I think <laughs> Joe Frazier coming in the way that he does it's not reckless. I think there's a method to the madness. In fact, we know there's a method to the madness the way he comes in like that. And he kind of goes balls to the wall and he's coming with all of the fire and all of the smoke. But because Deontay Wilder is so unconventional and has such an advantage being as tall as he is, before Joe gets in, and we've seen it before with George Foreman, who's even shorter than what Deontay Wilder is, he keeps coming forward and he gets hit hard. And guess what? He's going to double down and come forward. And that resulted in Six knockdowns against George Foreman. I think with Deontay Wilder, it's going to result in a knockdown and a knockout. And I think it will be pretty early. He's been knocked down before against Bonavina the first time they fought. The second time, not so much, but he still had problems with a shorter fighter. A fighter with the power of a Deontay Wilder, I think, stops Joe Frazier. And that, that could possibly be too. Um... I was, I didn't say it, but I was thinking if Joe gets caught on the way in, then he could go out just like Foreman had him. You know, once Joe gets hurt, it will be able to recover against Wilder, who's going to come after him, balls blazing. I don't know. I just think that Wilder's limited, and if all Joe has to worry about is that right hand, he'll, he'll be able to avoid it and do his business. But how often in Joe Frazier's fights have you seen him kind of act like he had to worry about what someone had to offer? Because once again, even against George Foreman, who had both hands that he could hit with, he got hit with the right hand, and it wasn't like he was trying to get away from the right hand. He just kept coming. He doubled down on his aggression, on his aggressiveness against George Foreman. 
I think the same thing happens here with Deontay Wilder. It's not that he would disrespect him or even look for the right hand. He will be cognizant of the right hand, but I don't think he'll be looking to really deliberately get away from it. He'll be looking to get inside. The one thing on his mind is I want to go after the body. He wants to tear your liver out, the types of things he told Muhammad Ali. And he will continue to do what he believes he has to do to get there. And that's just can't come in forward, sometimes reckless. And with Deontay Wilder, even with that one-dimensional approach, uh, right hand, I think that's enough for Deontay Wilder to, to end Joe Frazier. I guess we'll have to agree to disagree on this one. Well, and which round would I believe it would happen? Obviously, it's going to be earlier because Joe just doubles down. So I'll keep it within the realm, uh, within the time he lost to George Foreman. I mean, either the third round for the first fight or the fifth round in the second fight. Call it in the middle. A fourth round KO. Deontay Wilder over <laughs> Joe Frazier, in my opinion. But you know if it goes past five, Wilder's done. You know what? We've seen this guy really suck it up when he was tired early on because in his fight with Fury, if nothing else, he was able to suck it up when he was tied in the third and fourth round and still continue and still he's, give himself an he opportunity. Wasn't getting, he wasn't getting pressured and assaulted like Joe would, would bring it. But Don't does Joe continue it. to pressure and be aggressive once he starts feeling that Deontay Wilder power? He'll double down. His body will continue to tell him, you know, well, his mind doesn't get knocked out. Well, how else is he going to fight? Well, that's the, that's the only way he could fight. I think that Deontay <laughs> Wilder knocks him out. In the fourth round, we'll call it in the middle between his two fights with George Foreman, someone who had the power and used the power and the hammer. And How about Joe this? is out. Joe Joe goes down twice during the fight, but takes him out in like the ninth round, tenth well, round. Maybe. We can agree to disagree, and I'm sure whoever's <laughs> watching this, they will be on either of our sides, or they will just call it a draw just to be different. So that's something we can look forward to as well. And so oh, we have. We have that taken care of right now. Um, what would Bert say? Who? Bert Sugar? Bert. Yeah. Bert, you know what? I wouldn't even know. Bert Sugar was so caught up on the old school fighters. Even if it wasn't completely black and white, if it was just. Say Joe Frazier, <laughs> If it wasn't too far removed from a black and white television, he's taking that guy. So the <laughs> 70s is not too far away from the black and white televisions of the 50s. It's closer to that than it is to 2023. So he'll take. Uh, Joe Frazier. I'm going to go with Styles making fights. It doesn't change because it's two guys that are completely different eras, completely different styles. I just think that a six foot seven guy with that kind of power on the end, even though Joe's trying to close the distance, he gets hits, he goes down. We've seen that before with Joe Frazier. I mean, and we didn't just see it with, with George Foreman. Of course, he had less skill or less experience the first time around against uh, Oscar Bonavina. So we'll put the lid on that so we can move on to our next guy because this is even more interesting. Ron Lyle. And we know Ron Lyle more because of the George Foreman fights. And we just talk about one of the one of the underrated great fights of all time. He was a uh, 43-7-1. And he started boxing late, 29 years old. As you may know his story, he was in prison, started fighting there. Um, they wouldn't let him out of prison. In fact, when he came up for his parole hearings twice, they were saying boxing isn't a viable way to make a living once you get out of here. They were wrong, as usual. <laughs> he goes into boxing, you know, kind of gets himself together, becomes one of those hard-hitting boxers. His skill is a little bit deficient, a lot like Ernie Shavers, who didn't have a lot of skill, but they had that God-given power. And he was able to move forward in boxing. I think um, he had trouble. See, Ron Lyle had trouble with guys who were able to box. And then he had problems with guys who could punch. Well, George Foreman was able to punch, but then he beats, uh, well, he beats uh, uh, Buster Mathis, who was a, 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 a guy who was able to box, but he was rotund. We know about Buster Mathis. He was a, a boxing guy, but I, I think that um, against somebody like Deontay Wilder, I think Deontay Wilder catches him because he gets too reckless. They're almost the same kind of guy. They got into boxing late. The skills aren't completely refined, but his are more refined than Deontay Wilder's because I think Dante Wilder has fallen in love with his power so much that he, when all else fails, he's just going to keep using the right hand. And it will land over the course of 12 or 15 rounds if this was scheduled for that. It's not getting there either way. <laughs> yeah, this would be a, an all-out war, I believe. Lyle was a rugged, tough, some bitch, man. Yeah. And he's coming at you. 
Wilder's got that right hand. It could be who lands the, who lands first. Um, but I would go with Wilder in this case. I think he has the power, the edge and power, and he, he would land first. Yep, I'm thinking the same thing. I mean, two guys pretty much even in terms of experience because Deontay Wilder, roughly 35 <clears throat> amateur fights, 30 and 5 allegedly. And we've seen him in the Olympics. In fact, when I saw him in the Olympics, I didn't believe he was, well, that special. He didn't show power in, in the Olympics. And the reason why, because in the amateurs, you don't have enough time to really show power. You're so busy trying to get punches off and trying to impress the judges, shoe shining and all that kind of thing, that you, you didn't see the power that he had. But as a pro, just like Tommy Hearns, who didn't have a lot of knockouts as an amateur, you learn how to release that power. You learn how to keep your opponent at the end of your punch. And when you have those kinds of long arms and that frame and those shoulders, and you learn how to become explosive, you get that explosive result. I think against Ron Lyle, that explosive result would give us a lot of what we saw against George Foreman. In fact, maybe a little less because he'll be out after the first punch. I don't think he'll get back up like he did with George. You think Wilder punches harder than George? No, I don't think he punches harder than George. I just think that he'll catch Ron Lyle because George was a brute. He was just going to beat you into submission. Um, at least with Deontay Wilder, he could, he would beat you into submission if he has the chance. But he also throws that one shot where he just ex gets the full extension and he aims it and it lands and he gets the result. And I think this would be. Oh, I see. So he, you're saying he's going to stretch Ron Lyle. I think it would stretch Ron Lyle because of that <laughs> one shot. We've, you know, even though, once again, we can't quantify how hard he does punch with today's competition, but, hey, grown men hitting each other when they're over 200 pounds, things happen. And knockouts is usually the result of those things happening. So, Ron Lyle, we're unanimous on that. I'm sure someone else out there may see otherwise because Ron Lyle is in the 70s. and the other So far, so far after three fighters, Wilder's one, one, and one. Yeah, one, one, and one. I mean, anyway, he got, oh, yeah, he got a tie. Yeah, between us, yeah, he's a tie. And, hey, that's a better record than most people would have expected. Hey. It's it's a better record than most people would have expected going into a, a fight like this. And so our next guy, which is number four, and I don't know, Ken Norton, 42-7-1. We know about the 33 knockouts. We know about a lot of what Ken Norton has done, primarily because of the Muhammad Ali trilogy. You know, including that third fight, which, I mean, even as a huge Ali fan, I say he lost in uh, the Yankee Stadium back in 76. But nevertheless, looking at his record, looking at the people that he fought and the results he had against those people and the way that he fought. Wow. You know what? I take Deontay Wilder again against Ken Norton. Styles making fights. If you ask me, oh, man, I know people are going to get on me about this. He doesn't even need to be in the Hall of Fame. The only reason why he's in there is because of those three fights against Muhammad Ali. Everybody else, he's pretty much faulted. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of ways Ken Norton could win. Is he going to jab and stay away all night? I, I don't think so. So I'm with you on this one as well. Wow, I got Wilder taking him out. Maybe yeah. similar fashion to how George did it. Oh, exactly. And probably the same two rounds. And so with with Ken Norton, I remember, you know, Eddie Fudge was his trainer. And when he fought Muhammad Ali, he was like, hey, you jab with him. And that was pretty much the key of beating Muhammad Ali. See, Wilder's going to be there. Ali moved around. So Ken Norton could be more aggressive and come forward and throw his jab when he saw that Ali was about to jab. But Deontay Wilder, he's going to be there, but then he's still going to have that range. He's still going to have that length. And we've seen too often Ken Norton getting hit with hard shots <laughs> and getting beaten. I mean, Ernie Shavers knocked him out in the first round. I mean, nothing to be ashamed of, but I'm talking about the style that was able to do it. A puncher, a brutal puncher with very few skills, a lot of heart and a lot of power. That was it to get it done against him when Styles are making fights. Right. You said it. Styles make fights. Norton's not going to come out and bounce around and jab and move and spin and hold and grab. You know, he's going to try and fight, and he's going to get caught. He will get caught. That's my opinion. Yeah, because, I mean, look, if you want to just even have some comparisons of what you've seen on Ken Norton's record, the fighters that he's fought, Dwayne Bobbitt, I mean, this was an overrated guy anyway. 
and he beats him. So he gets him knocked out, but then we realize that Dwayne Barbic isn't what people thought. And then you have other fighters on the list that he had fought. You know, we see the Muhammad Ali fight. Those are the highlight fights of his career. And then it kind of ends there. He doesn't do a whole lot of anything outside of that. Uh, uh, Sheamus, we know, we know the home fight. Now, it's a legendary fight, but guess what? He was on the short end again, <laughs> you know? So right. and, and, and it wasn't a, a power-filled fight. It was skill, a lot of skill being used. In fact, I think a lot of what he had been told to do against Muhammad Ali, he was told to do against uh, Larry Holmes because of the similarities with the jab and the right hand, and, and it still came up short. And, of course, Larry Holmes hanging to that fight, you know, he had a torn biceps, but he didn't want to give up that opportunity for the title, so he continued to fight. So you lost to a, a hampered fighter. Not, you know, but Larry Holmes turned out to be a great fighter. But once again, Ken Norton KO'd by Deontay Wilder. Go figure. Now Deontay Wilder's above 500, 2 one and one after four matchups. Let me just say something about Larry Holmes. That man's will to win was like no one else's. He got dropped by Shavers. He got dropped by, by Witherspoon, by Snipes, and he, he pulled those fights out. Now, it's debatable if he really beat Witherspoon, but he, he didn't get stopped. Now, you know what? And against Witherspoon, you know, obviously it's boxing, and you know how boxing goes. Sometimes you get these decisions. Sometimes you get these ridiculous decisions. In fact, this year there have been so many outrageous decisions and so many close calls that we are calling boxing out again about it. But yeah, Larry Holmes, I mean, the underappreciated champion only because he followed Muhammad Ali and a very skilled, if not the greatest jab in boxing history, let alone weight class. As a heavyweight, his jab was phenomenal, followed up by that right hand. I mean, even though Jerry Cooney was overmatched before the fight, no one thought that. Or well, the people who knew, thought they knew better didn't know that. And he was able to get him out of there. Larry Holmes, definitely. And, and there was no use to have Larry Holmes on his list either to fight against. I saw Holmes do an interview, and he talked about the Cooney fight. He mentioned that Jerry heard him, but Jerry didn't know he heard him. Yeah, the body and, shot. And he covered it up, and he's like, Jerry did not follow up. or Because I was, I was feeling bad. He, he said, if he followed up, I was in trouble. But he hit it. You know, he was a smart fighter too, not just talented, mm-hmm. not just determined. He, he was very intelligent. I mean, look at the guys he had to, to spar with Muhammad Ali and then in Muhammad Ali's camp. And then you have Eddie Fudge overseeing what you're doing. I know Richard Jacetti came in later on, especially for the Spain's fight. But Larry Holmes had, you know, the best of both worlds in terms of tutelage. He just had the skill to go along with it. And I don't know how people like Howard Cosell and all of these other couch warriors were saying he didn't have heart. And that was just insane to even <laughs> think that and to see the things he's done. I mean, going back to fighters that continue to fight when they're hurt. I mean, Zab Judah, even against Mickey Ward, was feeling the pain at one point. He wanted to stop. His father threw him back out there. Hey, bro, you got to go out there and fight. This was against Mickey Ward. Not that, you know, Mickey Ward is, uh, uh, we don't we don't think that he's some type of scrub. But, yo, he can hurt you. But that's what fighters do. You got to suck it up. You can't, you can't show your hand. Right. Yeah. So, I wish Mickey Ward's left hand to the body was lethal. Oh, God. Mickey Ward's left hand to the body, like when Jim Lampley said, if I ever came back in another life, <laughs> Mickey Ward's left hook. <laughs> I mean, seriously, this was Jim Lampley. Who is Jim Lampley going to fight? Imagine him in the street just with Mickey Ward's left hook. Imagine that. Larry Merchant. Larry, Larry Merchant needs a left hook, a right cross, a knee to deliver, all that type of stuff, Larry Merchant. But as we continue to move on, without comparison, is Deontay Wilder one of those guys that can take on some of our legends? We'll find out again. Because up next is one of the more prominent, if not the most prominent on this entire list, Lennox Lewis, a guy that's about his height, 41 and two, you know, one draw. That one was against Evander Holyfield, 32 KOs. We watched a lot of Lennox Lewis ever since those <clears throat> Olympics back in 1988. Hall of Famer, everything you want. You know, I threw him in there only because of the size factor, but. Skill for skill, this is one of these things that's going to break it back to 500 <laughs> because he beats Deontay Wilder and I get, he gets him out of there in about eight rounds. He's, he's fought everyone. I mean, you could talk about Mike in his past, uh, not in his prime. Lennox wasn't in his prime either. But looking at the guys that he fought, Razor Ruddick, Ray Mercer, Michael Grant, that is who Deontay Wilder is. Michael Grant didn't have the power, but this is who 
Deontay Wilder is Michael Grant, six foot seven, same thing, just not the power. He got rid of him easily. Andrew Gallada got rid of him easily. Top guys. Yeah, Lennox did not struggle with tall guys, and, and this fight would be no different. But I would want to see the press tour. You know, Deontay screaming bomb squad and all <laughs> his little comments. Lennox came up with some of the most clever stuff. You know, he called Evander Evader Holyfield for dodging him for so many years. He told David Tua, you need more than a left hook and a haircut to beat me. And he proved you know? it. <laughs> he proved it in that fight, too. So the the press conferences would be insane. They'd be wild, you know. I'd be rolling laughing. But as far as the mythical matchup, Lennox comes out there, he does his thing. His, his jab is too effective. His right hands combined with the jabs, he breaks them down and takes them out. And, you know, Lennox is soft-spoken, and he's from London. Well, he's from the U.K., Jamaica, Canada. He's from everywhere. And people take him lightly in terms of his, his, his personality. They think that he doesn't really have a boxer's temperament. But when you look at what Lennox Lewis has done, and the way I just mentioned Andrew Galata and Michael Grant, he jumped on those guys immediately. And I see him doing the same thing against, well, Deontay Wilder, jumping on him immediately. This is a one or two round fight. I think that's it. Because once Probably. he has an upper, mean, upper hand on you, he, he throws heavy, heavy shots. And he's pretty accurate with those shots. Yeah, when he sees a guy with maybe limited skills that can't, can't hang with him boxing-wise, he goes in there with bad intentions. Yeah, he's going to go straight at him, break him down, take him out. Yeah. Exactly. Michael Grant is the epitome of that kind of guy you're talking about. You know, he was more <laughs> of the hype train and Nevada Holyfield jumped on that hype train running with him. And then when they fought, it was just a payday. He got him out of there and then hurt his knee at the same time. He just let his little pounced on him. And so we'll get out of that Lenny's Lewis thing because it now brings us to a 500 record, 2-2-1. Two, two and one. Now for Deontay Wilder against some of the legends that we've come up with. And the next legend will be, well, Floyd Patterson. Now, this is kind of a gimme, but Floyd Patterson had some, uh, well, no chance. But I thought it was nice to have him in here. So why not have Floyd Patterson, the first two-time champ as a heavyweight, gold medalist. We already know Helsinki Olympics, 1952. Um, the times he fought taller fighters, he just got obliterated. I mean, <laughs> he got beaten twice in the first round by uh, Sonny Liston. He was, I'm not going to even look at that fight he had against Muhammad Ali, you know, that last fight, because it was a bad fight. And, um, but generally speaking, he was a middleweight. So even when he fought light heavyweights, he was within his realm. When these bigger heavyweights started coming around, well, he was just a, a guy who used to be champ. So I look at Deontay Wilder just overwhelming, overwhelming him with power. Seeing someone that light, that short, even with the peekaboo style, he loses. He just loses. I agree. At 5'11", 5'11 and a half or so, yeah. and fighting at, what, 190 pounds, 185 pounds, he's just too small. He'd be uh, too easy to hit for, for Deontay. Um, if he were able to get inside, you know, he, he would work the body hard, but it would just be a matter of time. He would get caught. I would think with a 6'7 fighter, fighter like Deontay Wilder, he gets inside, he would just lean on him because he can and he'll shake his legs away from him, and he'll get knocked out even sooner. Third round, fourth round. I mean, he's been knocked out in the first round of consecutive fights. So that's a possibility as well. You know, he just didn't do well with power because he shouldn't have had against bigger guys. I mean, this was a former middleweight. I mean, he won the vacant title uh, fighting Archie Moore, another light heavyweight, you know, former light heavyweight. So he, he wasn't fighting big dudes. And Deontay Wilder, without a question, puts away the legendary – Floyd Patterson to up his record to three, two, and one. Three, two, and one above 500. You've been saying legends. Are all these guys legends? I think legends in their own right. And in this case, <laughs> it was Patterson, Floyd Patterson, because he is the first two time. Oh, I'm champion. not saying Floyd. I'm not well, saying Even Floyd. Ron Lyle. Ron Lyle, <laughs> you know, Ron Lyle fought a lot of the legendary guys in the, because relative to what Deontay Wilder is doing now in this era of heavyweight boxing. For Ron Lyle to do what he had done in the golden age of heavyweight boxing is, is not equivalent. So I think that the better the better era in which he had fought in 
kind of levels the playing field with what Deontay Wilder is doing in terms of his domination when he is dominant in this era we have now. So I guess in their own right, the rest of these guys, I mean, the Hall of Famers, the rest of them, we say, listen, Joe Frazier, Ron, uh, well, not Ron Lyle, and um, <laughs> <laughs> not even Ernie Shavers, but we know Ernie Shavers' reputation for power punching and the fights that he had put up. So, you know, that kind of makes him a legend. People still talk about him. Uh, they probably can't mention the jab that he threw, but they know about the power punches that he's landed and the guys who fell from those punches. So, yeah, that kind of makes him somewhat of a legend in that kind of realm, that kind of light. So that finally brings us to our final guy, as you may know, as we mentioned earlier, Rocky Marciano, the only undefeated heavyweight champion ever, and it's a heavyweight record, not a Floyd Patterson record, by the way. I mean, not a Floyd Mayweather record. So Rocky Marciano versus... Deontay Wilder, I'll let you go first on this one. Similar to Floyd Patterson, it's a tough matchup. I mean, Rocky's toughness was legendary. You know, he fought a fight with his nose hanging. When do they fight? That's the thing. Do they fight in Rocky's era? Do they let him take all that punishment? Do they let his face get broken? If they fight now, that fight's going to get stopped in like the fifth or sixth round. Well, you know what? Once again, I'm going to go against you, and I know <laughs> what's going to happen if someone listens to this. Well, Styles makes fights, first of all, and Rocky Marciano was not of this world, and we've seen this guy and have heard the stories about him getting hit hard and still coming. You know, the guys who knocked him down were the guys who had skill. We've always talked about how Deontay Wilder did not have the high skills that he should have at his height at his weight, being a heavyweight in this era. He doesn't show the jab. He has the right hand, but it would be so much better if he followed it up after the jab that he should have. And in that regard, the guys who were able to set up punches and, and, and hit Rocky, like Jersey Joe, who knocked him down, like Archie Moore, who knocked him down, the only two guys to do it. I mean, it took skills to get that punch in. He was able to weather the storm with a lot of guys who were known as punches. Archie Moore, even though a light heavyweight, he was heavier than Rocky as a heavyweight. And he would have, you know, had the most knockouts for a long time until he didn't. So that, that power come from somewhere and he got knocked out. And then you look at some of um, the, the harder punches that he fought. Well, Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis is a thousand years old. We know that story. However, how can we talk about the punches, the last thing to go on a fighter? But because of convenience, it's Rocky versus Joe Lewis. It's not a case anymore. It's still <laughs> a case. He still got hit several times before ultimately getting Joe Lewis out of there. He took Joe Lewis's power, that same power that Joe Lewis was knocking several guys out as he ruled the roots for 12 years. So that power, just like George Foreman, did not go away. Now, the reflex and all those things went away. But Rocky took those shots flush and his sneaky defense kind of roll with those punches, and he delivered his own shots. Now, you could say that a stationary Joe Lewis was able to take those punches, and, you know, he was old, and that's why he was stationary. Joe Lewis was pretty stationary throughout his entire career. If you watched him, he stood right in front of you. He rarely did a lot of moving. Now, the hands didn't move as fast when he got older, but power punches is what Rocky Marciano had to weather before he got his knockout. I think he gets inside, and his conditioning, forget about it. No one's ever been more conditioned than he has. This guy wanted 20-round fights, and he could fight a 20-round fight. He keeps going inside, not like Joe Frazier, so let's not get it mixed up. <laughs> not reckless like Joe Frazier. He'll be going in with his plan. This 5'10 fighter will now be 5'6", even lower, with a 6'7 puncher, with an 83-inch reach, punching down, missing the shots because he's not skilled, Let's not forget, he is not skilled. And if Rocky gets inside, he's going to the body because that's his only option. The reason why, a fighter like Deontay Wilder with that kind of punching power. Deontay Wilder needs room. He needs space. He needs to get that complete snap on his punch to get that power. Have you seen him knock too many people out with uppercuts? He doesn't do it. He gets you from the outside because he needs that full extension. And at six foot seven and 83-inch reach, that full extension would be the reason why he knocks someone like a Marciano out. But how is he going to set that up without a jab? He hasn't used it. So Marciano gets inside. will wear him down. 
He will feel the pain. He will feel that ridiculous power. I mean, Marciano knocked out, even though it was a journey. Then Humphrey, uh, what's his name, Jackson, I believe, he knocked him down um, and knocked him out. He was 254 pounds. So he could put a dent in bigger bodies. So I think Deontay Wilder, a late fight, if you want to do 12 rounds, he's knocked out in the 11th. If you want to do 15th round, 15 rounds, well, he's knocked out in the 11th still. Because Rocky, and there's, there's no proof Deep Wilder can go 13, 14, 15 rounds. Yeah, exactly. So there's no proof. So we wouldn't have to worry about it. We I just think the size disparity. Yeah, he's going to get caught at some point. He's 5'10, he's just too small. Yeah, just he's going to get caught at some point, but he's been caught at some point before. He's been caught at some point against Joe Lewis, who punches hard. He was still there. He got caught by uh, Archie Moore, the knockout king. He was still there. He went down, won the fight. Jersey Joe, not the knockout king, just one of the best cuties ever. He got knocked out and then knocked out in the first round in the rematch. I think Rocky Marciano, and I think the argument that I'm making, makes sense. He can get inside. He can wear him down. He's going to get hit eventually, but he's not going to go down. And if he does, he's going to get back up because he's done it before. But we've seen Deontay Wilder go down, and we've seen him not get up. Fight over. Rocky Marciano. <laughs> there we yeah. go. A 500 fight. Yeah, go. You make a good argument. It's just that I just don't see it because of the size disparity. Yeah. Just, so, you know what? I can understand that easily. But once again, let's not forget what we talked about earlier. Deontay Wilder has the six foot seven size advantage, but he's still 212 and 215 at his best. Joe Lewis was about 212 when he fought Rocky. <laughs> I mean, other than a few inches vertically, what's the difference? And we still can't quantify the power of Deontay Wilder? Inches makes a lot of difference. Oh, no, the inches, no, I'm talking about vertically, not the arm reach and all that. But the arm reach coming from someone who boxes and has that refined skill set would mean a lot more than a guy who almost refuses to throw a jab when he's just exclusively looking to land that big right. I well, you know, it's like, it's like I said. Do they fight in the 50s or do they fight now? They fight right. now. Rocky's face is getting busted up. They stopped the fight. I'm if wondering they if fight back in the stopped. 50s, he fights through it and he stops Wilder. Well, I'm wondering how, you know, like if he ends up, look, Deontay Wilder, how often have we seen him really destroy and fight his face? I mean, throughout the four times, Fury went down. His face. When have you seen him fight a 5'10 guy weighing 185 pounds? Well, what was the last? Well, I haven't seen him do that. He, that that hasn't happened. This is just mythical. But I'm just trying to use a little <laughs> bit of a little bit of sense here, a little bit of ingenuity. I'm just and saying so, we don't have anything to compare it to. No, we, we don't. We really don't. And that's why I think that it, it should make some sense because we're talking we, when we get into this bigger heavyweight that we're talking about most of the time. We're talking about these bigger heavyweights. They're also <clears throat> 250 pounds. Andy Ruiz, oh. Anthony Joshua. Um, I, Tyson Fury. I'll, give, I'll give you credit for making a good case because there's a lot of people out there just be saying, who would just say, how could you even ask the question? Rocky Marciano, he's the toughest and roughest and he's 49 and over, blah, you know, like they wouldn't even make a case. They just like look down on it and say, he was 49 and old, he was so tough, he beat Joe Lewis, he did this. And that's the end of the story. That's not that's not making the case. No, that's not making the case. Made the case, so I'll give you credit. I just don't happen to agree. Well, we can kind of go with this 500 deal right now. <laughs> I think you know what? Two, hey, two and two. Yeah. Well, I wasn't. <laughs> yeah, two, two and two across the board. I mean, not bad, man. I, when we first talked about this, I thought it might be zero and six. But wait a minute, isn't it? Um, we had seven matchups. We had seven oh, matchups. Patterson. So yeah, three, so yeah, so I think, yo, three, three, and one, so we're good. Either way you look at it, Deontay Wilder, I believe, fares better than we probably would have thought because I know these historians and I know these people who can't just turn off the black and white television. They just can't see a guy of today, especially Deontay Wilder, where so many say he doesn't have the skills. He doesn't have the skill. He's just power. He's too one dimensional. And they see something like that, that he's comparing against some of these other guys from the past. They can't really deal with it. Burt Sugar couldn't deal with it. If he was here right now, he'd be cursing me out over this. <laughs> he would, because that's what he did. I believe it. I believe it. I mean, he would curse me out over this. And I you know, have to tell him something back. Uh, but 
nevertheless, this is the conclusion we came to. And with that, we put a lid on it. And every Wednesday, we're going to try to come with something like this, have this conversation. If we can have it live stream, you can join this conversation, come with your own points and contentions as it pertains to whatever topic matter we have, subject matter we're going with. So as this continued to be a sports show, we're not just talking boxing. We're going to get back into some of the news of the day, some of the hot topics. We're not going to sprint to it. We're going to give some respect to it. And with that being said, Shohei Atani, the greatest player in the past 25, 30 years. I've seen the light. I'm here. <laughs> I was the one I thought it was no big deal to bat up and go pitching. Man, he's not just batting up and pitching. The guy's dominating baseball. I mentioned yesterday he was taking the mound against my White Sox. Uh, he also DH'd. He went three for three, two home runs. Yeah. And on the mound, he struck out 10, only gave up one run. If that's not the greatest player in the game right now, please show me who is because whatever numbers you throw, I'm going to say, but can he strike out 10 on the mound? If you give me a picture, I'm going to say, is he leading the league in home runs? Six and a third innings. He left with the trainer, but he stayed in to bat up and got a home run. Another one. Mm -hmm. You know what? I, I almost feel guilty that I even thought that it was no big deal that you're pitching and you're batting up and all the other <laughs> stuff. Man, it matters. You know, I, you know, being a White Sox fan, I'm part of uh, White Sox Twitter. I follow a lot of White Sox fans. They follow me. See people complaining, why was he allowed to be a DH when he got taken out of the game? It's two separate positions. Exactly. It just happens that he can DH for himself. So just because the pitcher gets removed doesn't mean that the DH has to come out. And this is a message to everybody. Just because you have the right to whine doesn't mean you should whine. Just shut up and appreciate greatness. You know what? Some people are resistant. They're resistant to it because in one way, and I think even for me in the beginning, you know, you, I don't know, for some quirky reason, you're desecrating baseball because you're not playing just one position. <laughs> that's what I'm looking at. But then you just admire the high level in which he's doing it on the mound in the batter's box. I mean, obviously it's in the locker room. I mean, he's playing for a pretty bad team right now, <sighs> but I just wonder that, how long will he, will he do both? It will, or with this next contract, will his, if he leaves the angels, will his manager be like, you know what, let's start bringing you, uh, off the mound some more, you know, maybe only get give you five or six starts. Maybe um, when there's a bullpen game, maybe it goes to Otani. But eventually they might want to make him just a full-time right fielder. I don't know. I'm just curious. You know what? During negotiations, though, to maximize his money, having all of those things that he can do is the reason why he's going to get that money. When Mike Trout is talking about 500 to $600 million, I know he doesn't know for sure, but – it's not out of the, the realm of possibility of something like that happening, depending on which team wants him. One of the major market teams, obviously <clears> New York, L.A., Boston, they could pay that kind of money. So if they're paying that kind of money, they don't want the party to, to stop. They don't want it to be limited. They want everything they've seen. That's why they're willing to pay. True. It's just for his long-term health, you know, do you want him to play 20 years or – is he going to actually eventually break down, have shoulder problems, elbow yeah. problems? Well, you play know, long enough. Tommy John, then you lose an outfielder as well. Play long enough to recoup that 500 or 600 million. <laughs> That's what they want. You know, I'll tell you what, if he can get that much more, much more power to him, but I do. I am yeah, impressed. I, I don't I'm wish him, him, I don't wish him any ill will. I'm just wondering oh, no, how. No, no. To I, do I don't know. I don't wish players outside of Boston ill will at all, ever. You know, I just don't do that. So, and well, he, he's going to continue to be as dominant as he is. The All Star break is coming up in about another, what, two and a half weeks or so. And he, he does it continue after that? You know, we have a lot of storylines going into the All Star break. Does it continue after the All Star break? Because the All Star break has been known to stop and slow people down. If you had a hot streak, you're not as hot. You probably keep up with things. And as we've talked about yesterday with some of these players that had gone into the All-Star break 
or the first 79 games with high batting averages. John Olerud was the example yesterday, 406 going in. He ended the season 363, which isn't bad at all, but it certainly isn't 400. The only one to go up instead of down was Teddy Ballgame. That's it. Going in at 397, coming out at 406. You so, know what makes it more, more amazing? Ted Williams, he wasn't just a contact spray hitter. He was a, a run producer. He hit home runs. Everything. And I, think, I think that's the difference between Olerud and the Riots. Olerud would still hit home runs. Yeah, he didn't hit 45 or whatever, but he, he had power. Arias, he's just putting the ball in play. He knows he doesn't have too much power. He's not trying to hit the ball out of the park. Unless you, has, unless you yes. give him one down the middle, then he might turn on it. But I think he's got a better chance than Olerud had for that reason. He has the better uh, better mindset than most of the players now because we see these guys and before the All-Star break, guys are creeping towards 100 strikeouts. You know what I mean? So that mindset of everyone wanting to go over the fence some of these ballparks are smaller now because they want you to go over the fence. You know, I like to see someone like Arise. You know, he does remind me of, we continue to say, Tony Gwynn, Wade Boggs, all of those guys who look for contact, and they happen to have a little bit of power. But, hey, in his role and what he has, how he's affected his team, those Marlins are now a competitor, a contender in their division for the first time in how long? I mean, yeah, a lot of these young guys, I mean, even when you uh, – you go out throughout the league and see all these young guys. You know, we talk about Ellie Dela Cruz in Cincinnati. It's no coincidence they're playing better when they are typically not playing as well this early in the season. Right. I mean, if the if the Marlins get into the playoffs and the rise is hitting like he does, yeah, he's not going to steal bases like Ricky Henderson. But if he's on base every three innings, if you know, he's gonna cause havoc. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that he does real big things if they go to the playoffs because he'll be a Yankee eventually. So that's what I'm looking forward to because that's what happens. You're going to be a Yankee if you continue to do the right thing. Or he might just get you after Tommy John. He'll go there the year after hitting 403 and probably hit like 260. And that's the truth, man. The, the, the ghost of New York inside that new stadium and the entire city of whining fans because that's what we do. That's how we get down. So – and sticking with that New York theme, the New York mess, which are the mess, they did get their win, but it's an absolute mess up there. And the Yankees, how do the Yankees lose to the Oakland A's yesterday? I mean, God. Well, they have been playing better. They had that winning streak a, a few weeks ago. Yeah. So they're not historically bad as they were earlier in the season. No, they're not. But you, it, you it's, don't not like, it's not like the bad news bears coming to town. They're, they're respectable. At least they well, have been. Well, um, respectable for that winning streak they had, and then they kind of went right back down precipitously to where they were, below they're Kansas City. They're due for another streak. <laughs> I hope it doesn't start with the Yankees, and it seems like that's exactly what happened. Um, anyway, forget the Yankees, man. They don't need to be talked about right now. You know, Aaron Judge still talking about a toe. Uh, oh, man. Tiki Barber up there on their no radio. Game. No game. You know, we had uh, – of, um, I'm drawing a blank. Patriots, all their cheaters, all the cheating incidents. Uh, Deflate Gate, <laughs> Spy Gate. Now, now the Yankees have Toe Gate. Toe Gate, but at least Toe Gate isn't a cheat. Toe Gate is just bad toes and bad timing. And you know, Tiki Barber does radio up in the New York area for WFAN, and he was talking about speaking as a former athlete, the toe problem, and how it may be a bigger problem than expected. I can believe it if Tiki is saying it. I know people don't like him for what happened off the field and being a prima donna, a prima donna on the team. But, yeah, I think his insight is really on point when he can talk about the injury of a toe for the athlete, a big man like Aaron Judge who's huge, and, you know, and how it can equate to what Tiki Barber dealt with with injuries or even injuries he's known of while being an NFL player. But nevertheless, let's move on. Tell the story about my home. Yeah. <laughs> Toe Every time you say Aaron Judge, I think toe, and I, I just wait for you to mention it. It happens every time. Yo, if they want to go check out toe somebody, story, there's, there's gonna be a, a thirty for thirty called toe story. Yeah, we're gonna have to go come up tomorrow, look through the archives, and find the episode in which they can find the toe story instead of the Toy Story. <laughs> the right. toe story, man. That's what we're gonna have. 
And now we can get a little bit into the NBA because they're still dripping out a little information here and there. Victor Wimbayama, who's now the number one pick of the NBA draft, obviously, by the San Antonio Spurs, who's turned down fever, not going into the World Cup of basketball. He decides he wants to play this summer in the summer league, but how much is he going to play? That remains to be seen, but I think it's a good move on his part. Um, people probably said that's a Popovich decision. Either way, I think it's good for him, good for the Spurs, and people are going to be looking forward to his, to his first game in, in the summer league. Absolutely. It, it gives the, the fans a chance to embrace the newcomer, the new age of basketball, the new era. And, of course, the support he has from the legends of San Antonio. I mean, I didn't see George Gervin out there, but I did see Matto Ginobili, David Robinson, and um, uh, Tim Duncan. Let me forget these guys' names, but Tim Duncan. You know, he's in good hands. But, I, you know, people are anxious to see him. I'm actually anxious to see Scoot Henderson. And I was also, of course, Grady Dick. We want to see him because that's just too funny. <laughs> I, just want to see him. I mean, I mean, not that I want to see him. His, but then wear his suit while he's playing. Yeah, wear the suit, man. But if he's a 40 <laughs> clip three-point shooter in his first year with, with the Toronto Raptors, hey, that's going to be something to watch. But I will be keeping my eye on him. There's a lot going on. I wonder, does Chet Holmgren, does he go back into the summer league? I don't know. You know, after being off last year. Remember when uh, – uh, If he's healthy, he should get out there. Well, yeah, you know, they said he was healthy. They thought he would be able to go into the uh, – playing the playoffs when Oklahoma City was doing some things. But then they thought the better of it, and he did it. So yeah, I, I can see how you know that goes, and I was. He's got to work himself. He's got to work himself back into game shape. So he yeah, should be. exactly. But I wouldn't be surprised if if they did put him out there. I'd love to see the guy because I think, you know, Oklahoma City did some good things last season without him, and I think he would have really added to what they were doing last year. Let's see what he does going into this year, and finally, well, not finally, we're talking more sports with recruiting. College football is coming up, as you know. Next month, which is, well, next week or starts this Saturday, college football media days begin, and along with the NFL, but college football media days begin in the SEC, the Big Ten, the Pac-12, all the above. And Nebraska's making noise in the recruiting world with Matt Rule. He's ruling the world. Not only is he stealing players from Prime, Coach Prime in Colorado, he's keeping his own dogs at home. Right. I think that's important. Like I mentioned uh, last week, I believe, I thought Prime was going to close the borders, not let anybody come in and take Colorado players. But Nebraska has two. And uh, today, the top tight end in the state, he's the number one recruit out of Nebraska. He committed to Nebraska. He said, uh, go Big Red. We're staying home. Took off his jacket, had a Nebraska shirt on. Everybody went crazy. Um and they moved up two spots in the rankings, so now they're up four to 14. So Matt Rule's first class, he's doing uh, really well. See how he closes out, and let's see what happens this upcoming season. Yeah, because Carter Nelson is a four-star tight end. And, you know, when you look at Nebraska, the state, you know how thin they are in terms of population, so you're not going to find so many four- or five-star players. But when you get one and you can keep them home, at a time when Nebraska hasn't been that good over the past several years and anyone can come in and take him out, especially Coach Prime next door in Colorado, he couldn't do it. So, in fact, Matt Rule is stealing his players. So, you know, right now we have um, Carter Nelson tied in. You know, hopefully he can have the career like Johnny Mitchell. You never know. You know how Johnny Mitchell was when he was at Nebraska. He was a freak in terms of his, his overall talent. And uh, Daniel Kalen is the quarterback that they've gotten as well out of Washington State, which is um, – no, actually, he's not from Washington State. He's actually from Nebraska as well. But he's a he's a quarterback. And if these two could come in together, he's a three-star guy. Sometimes I believe in the star system. Sometimes I don't because we've seen too many five-stars fall, so we've seen enough three-stars become better than five-stars. But, hey, if they can get it together, being both Nebraska-born Nebraska and bred, they have a nice little tandem there in addition to all of the other recruits. And, of course, those offensive linemen that Nebraska is definitely going to get to come there because that's just what they do with offensive linemen. Hopefully. But, actually, Kalen has two of his uh, wide receivers going to Nebraska with him. See, see, those are the things we need to know about Nebraska football that you're not going to get anywhere else outside of a Nebraska broadcast. So that's why you need to stay tuned to us. Four days a week, whenever you can catch us, and when we start streaming live, 
you should be there for us as well. So the the NFL is starting up as well. College football next month, the NFL next month. <sighs> Isaiah Rogers of the Indianapolis Colts, they're giving out suspensions for gambling. The NFL is doing their hypocritical thing as usual. And along with Jameis um, um, Williams up in Detroit, he got his six months. But it looks like a season-long suspension for Isaiah Ro- for Isaiah Rogers and a handful of other players they haven't mentioned yet. But that seems like that's what it is going into this camp, which should start at the end of next month. Yeah, I'm wondering if Goodell is just fed up. Like, you know, I suspended this guy, I suspended that guy. You guys are not getting the, the hint. Now he's going for a year-long suspension. He's serious. It may be hypocritical, but the rules are what they are. Players are not to be betting on NFL games while they're in the locker room or NFL premises. Yeah. I don't know what these guys are doing. It should be common knowledge by now. Yep, and Calvin Ridley's coming off his suspension. Now the Jaguars signed him, so now he's a legitimate number one anyways coming out of Atlanta, now he's with the Jaguars, giving them a legitimate number one. Coming off of the same suspension, it was indefinite when they had done it with him. He's been reinstated. He's been with team activities. So he's ready to go going into this season here. But that rule, you can't do it on the property, but if you went across the street, you can just gamble your butt away. Is that what it is? (laughs) Is that what it is? You can lose your shirt across the street, but you just can't lose your shirt in here. Seems that way. Unbelievable, but that's what we have. I mean, but it's your place of business. It's their rules. You know, in Illinois, Illinois, um, marijuana is legal. But can you smoke it at work? No. No. You have your own rules. They have their own rules at work. Of course, you know, when people talk about my First Amendment rights, your First Amendment rights have nothing to do with Uh private entity. If they don't want certain things, you can't do certain things. You know, but in any event, well, Travis Kelsey seems to be happy with what he has right now. You know, he's getting $14.3 million on average per year. And he seems not to care. He wants to win more than he wants to make money. His agents, he says, comes to him all the time saying, so-and-so is getting about three times as much as you. He says, that's all well and good. I'm good winning. Very rare to hear that in the NFL or anywhere in sports today or almost anywhere, anywhere today. On the surface, yes, but he's also signed through 2026. If he sings that same tune in 2026, then we can have a lot more respect for him. But he's he's got a few more years to get there. And if if he gets to 2026 and he gives Casey a friendly deal because he wants to keep winning, well, great. Hats off to him. <laughs> but when it's time, I'm I guarantee you his agent will be saying a different be singing a different tune. You know, his agent would be saying the same thing. In fact, he might raise it to four times as much as you're getting. So let's get that now. You know, you know, and and you're true, it's right. You know, he, 2026 is where he signed up into, but you also know that teams, when you are a quality player, they try to get ahead of it. They want to do it a year or two in advance, kind of renew the contract. And going into this year, if he continues to do what he's always done since he's been in the league, They'll be open to doing that and what kind of money they give them. I mean, there's value there now for people who can catch the ball. Um, tight ends, you know, you want to be the highest paid tight end. No, nah, he does enough that even wide receivers do in terms of taking over games and being that explosive. So he'll be able to be one of those rare guys who can get not tight end money, but <clears> get <throat> money that's becoming of a playmaker at almost any position or at the highest paid position outside of quarterback. Yeah, if I'm a Chiefs fan, I'm saying, man – Redo his contract now. Don't let him get away. The relationship he has with Patrick Mahomes is yeah. unreal. It is not true. You do not want to lose that. Nope. You don't want to lose that. And just as well as the Patriots did not want to lose Devontae Parker, as they've given him a three-year contract, $33 million, at least up to $33 million. And $14 million of that is guaranteed money. So is this what Matt Jones, Matt Jones, is looking forward to as a receiver who hasn't gone over two thousand, a uh, thousand yards, even with the seventeen game season. He was out with injury last year for the last four games, but is he really that game breaker that gets that kind of money on a team like the Patriots, who's still trying to find a way with their quarterback going into his third season? I think Mac Jones needs more weapons. Does this mean they don't sign DeAndre Hopkins now? I don't know. 
But if you look at Parker's numbers the last four, four years, they've declined each season. Yep. And, and then not only that, the injuries that he's had now, four games that he missed last season because of the, the knee injury, you have 17 games now. So if that's even, you know, that, that, that likelihood of getting injured is even more. And so, yeah, DeAndre Hopkins would have been a nice sign if he would have gone up there to New England. Bill Belichick, you would like to believe after all of this time, knows what he's doing. He knows what his team needs. He knows how to get there. He just doesn't know how to get there without Tom Brady. And we're seeing that now. So Mac Jones, a Jacksonville guy who I've watched since high school, I like to see him succeed. But the way things are going right now, I don't think it's all him. I think it's the office of coordinator. I think just things is not following his way because he did look pretty solid in his first year. Yeah, Belichick needs to get more more spies in other teams' training camps. and needs to get more film. Uh, it hasn't been working. Well, obviously, it hasn't been working. And you know what? The egg or the with the chicken or the egg. We now see that Tom Brady has a lot to do with what happened in Belichick land because before that, when he had Drew Brees, he didn't know what he had in the locker room at the time when he had Tom Brady on his roster. When Tom Brady comes along, we see a whole bunch of championships later, and all of a sudden. Bill Belichick's a genius. He's always been a defensive genius coming under Bill Parcells. But we don't forget he also was at Cleveland before, too. Was he? Was he? Carl Banks, Lawrence Taylor, all those yeah. guys. You know what? Hey, you know what? We call Bill Walsh a genius, and he had Roger Craig. He had Joe Montana. He had at least Jerry he, White. he created a, a new offense. Yeah. He, Everybody copied it. Spectacularly in that offense. I don't think – he could have run the option and still probably win a Super Bowl. That's <laughs> the talent that he had in their team. But nevertheless. If he did run the option, Roger Craig would be in the Hall of Fame right now. Yeah. But get him in. Fumbled a whole lot too. Roger, get him in. Roger fumbled a whole lot, but I don't believe that's what's keeping him out of the Hall of Fame. Out of the Hall of Fame. I mean, it's, it's a shame that he's not in the Hall of Fame. I, I don't think he's really looking forward to it anymore after I've heard the stories of how upset he's been when they made it seem as if this is your year and it was not his year. But anyway, that puts a lid on this marathon show. And we went over an hour. Too. We went over an hour, man. We had a, a, a real conversation this time around. The Sports Bag Brothers podcast episode number 18 is coming to an end. If you want to see us on YouTube, you know you're right here right now. Hit the subscribe button. Also, give us a thumbs up. That helps the algorithm. We said all of this right now because we didn't want to waste your time telling you this early on so you could enjoy the first part of this show when we talked about Deontay Wilder going against some almost legends and some legends. And it turned out to be a battle of 500, 3-3-1. Deontay Wilder could fit in at some point back in the 70s and therefore, our tribe, he's biased. Uh, thank you for joining us. I'm trying to find all this stuff going on. And right. make sure you join us tomorrow. Or number 19.